The following audio is from the Grove Church Snohomish campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. No, I'm really excited to be back in Snohomish. I honestly love getting the opportunity to come here and uh, just be able to share with all of you. And today I got the opportunity because Pastor Andrew and Amanda are gone on vacation. I uh, came a little bit earlier and got to be a part of the setup team and everything. And first off, if you guys don't know, uh, every morning or Sunday morning, uh, the setup team comes in, they do an amazing job, they get everything ready to go, and uh, honestly, like by the time I normally come, well, like at like 9 or whatever, uh, everything's set up and ready to go, you don't even have to think about it, but it's just incredible to see a team of people working so hard, and also a team of people who are so dedicated uh, to Jesus and to the mission, I love being uh, even just a small part of the church, so I love being here, uh, I'm just excited, just excited to be here. So... With that being said, we're going to go ahead and continue our series, Not a Hostage, which is really based on this idea that as Christians, we are not supposed to live as hostages to different things. And so the first week, two weeks ago, we talked about how uh, we are not supposed to live as hostages to sin. Last week, we talked about how we are not supposed to live as hostages to our own emotions. And this week, what I want to talk about is the idea that as Christians, we are not to live as hostages to insecurity. Now, insecurity is a really interesting problem, and you can kind of say, you know, synonymous with self-esteem kind of issues like that, but I would say as a, as a culture, we all pretty much understand that we have, um, that we have an issue with it. If you, if you walk into a bookstore, which granted there's less and less of them coming along, but if you walk into any bookstore, uh, usually your biggest section of books is going to be on self-help, and it's this idea of like, you know, how do I better myself, all these different things, this idea that, you know, maybe I'm lacking in these different areas, and how do I fix that? If you go on Facebook, uh, I would say it's roughly 50% people arguing about politics, which is always great. Um, and then 45% posts about self-esteem and like your stuff. Like I get told I'm special more by Facebook than, than I do by any other source in my life. Um, and then it's like 5% pictures of people's kids, which, you know, hey, kids are cute, that's fine. So go ahead and post them. But that, that's pretty much what it's become. And I, perhaps I was never more confronted with this reality than, um, I, for those of you who don't know me very well, I'm, I'm kind of a podcast fiend, love listening to podcasts, which is kind of what I do. Um, I looked at, because uh, now your phone shows you where you spend all of your time on the apps, and I average like five hours a day on podcasts, which is, is it healthy or unhealthy? But anyway, I listen to a lot of things. Um, but normally what I'm listening to is like, uh, it's Christian podcasts, it's sports, or it's politics, right? Like, those are kind of the three categories of things that I like to listen to. And it'll suggest podcasts. And it's like, hey, you've been listening to, to blank. Maybe you want to listen to this. And usually it's like something that I, that I would like. But for whatever reason, the very first thing that pops up whenever I'm looking at, like, suggested things is this podcast, which I got a picture of. It's called Why Won't You Date Me? Which, um, <laughs> First off, my wife says I'm delightful. I don't care for your tone, podcast app. Um, but second, it's interesting to me that th- this is really, it's nothing like anything that I listen to. Um, and yet, the very first podcast that it tells me, like, hey, maybe you want to listen to this, is a podcast. I guess I've never listened to it, so I don't know for sure. But it seems like it would be dealing uh, with this idea of self-esteem. Or it's just a lady complaining. I don't know. But it's, it's you know, it's one of those things. And so today... I want to talk about not so much the fact that we know that there is a problem, talk about the solutions. Because I think as a culture, we have the wrong solutions. Um, Growing up and time and time again, what what happens is is you can't just get fed into yourself. You get taught that you're amazing. You get taught that you're special. 
Um, when I was a kid, you know, we did the snowflake cutout of the paper, and then we did the whole, like, we pulled it out, and then my teacher was like, just like, no two snowflakes are like, no one is like you, Evan. And I was like, wow, thank you, Miss Castor, that was amazing. Um, but we get told these things over and over again, I think we realize that at the end of the day, it doesn't work. And I, I think the reason it doesn't work is because as Christians, we're asking ourselves the wrong question. We continually ask ourselves, am I good enough? And when we should be asking ourselves, do I believe that Jesus is enough? We, we continually try to look to ourselves for validation in our own insecurities instead of trying to look at the person who we should be anchored into. And I, I wanted today to share, um, as I was preparing for this message, I kept thinking about like what Bible story I would want to, to talk about, what Bible story really deals with insecurity. And honestly, uh, I landed on three. So I've never done this before. So exciting times for everyone in the room. But we're just going to go through three Bible stories. Um, because honestly, they're all stories of people who were called by God to do something incredible, um, but shied away from it because of their insecurities, and it's about God's answer to them. And they all deal with insecurity in their own different way, and I think that every story for different people in the room has a, has a point of application. So I'll show you what I mean here in a little bit. Um, I, I want to start off with the story of Moses. Now, Moses, I imagine most of us are pretty familiar with. If you're in my generation, you might have grown up watching Prince of Egypt, which is an awesome movie, so if you haven't checked it out, and it's just a great movie. Um, but maybe if you're in an older generation, when I say Moses, you think of Charles and Heston with a wig and a beard holding up the Ten Commandments over the Red Sea and like a huge painting in the background. I mean, hey, whatever, whatever your deal is. Uh, we're very familiar with the story of Moses. And just to kind of recap really quick his life, Moses is born uh, in Egypt to the nation of Israel during a time when they're incredibly oppressed. They're living in slavery, and Pharaoh actually passes a law um, or commands that all the children under a certain age are to be killed. And so, as kind of a last-ditch last ditch effort to save her baby, Moses' mother puts him into a basket, puts him on the river, and just kind of floats him down the Nile in the hopes that someone else will pick up this child and give him the life that he will not be able to have if he stays in her care. Well, by uh, the hand of providence, or by God's hand, uh, Moses ends up with Pharaoh's daughter, and he ends up being raised as a member of Pharaoh's court. So he gets an education better than any Israelite around would have gotten, I guess, an extra standing. Um, but somewhere along the way, whether it's from the beginning or whether it's revealed to him, Moses finds out that he is uh, an Israelite. He learns these things, and he sees one day uh, an Israelite man being beaten by an Egyptian slave master, and he's overcome with anger. And in, in his rage, he murders the Egyptian, and he runs away because he understands the punishment for murder. And so he goes into the wilderness. And he comes into a land called Midian, and he finds there uh, a man named Jethro who kind of takes him in. And eventually Moses finds his wife, Zipporah. Uh, they get married, and Moses is content. He spent about 40 years being a shepherd, and by all accounts, he's, very, he's going to be very content spending the rest of his life in the wilderness, tending sheep and raising his family, which is not a bad thing. Uh, but God has other plans. And so one day Moses is walking, and he sees a bush on fire, which in the desert probably isn't that crazy of a sight. But the bush... Uh, is not being consumed by the fire. In other words, the wood itself isn't burning, the leaves aren't burning, it's just like on fire when things happen to it. And God is using this as a sign, um, and he ends up speaking to Moses audibly through the bush, which is kind of a really incredible thing to be able to think about, that God took the time to do that. And so to pick it up in verse three, verses, uh, Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, God says this, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians 
and bring them up out to a land that is good, a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and a lot of other ites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so we get this incredible moment where Moses is called by God to do something that honestly was probably thought to be impossible. And we know that Moses is ready for his people to be free. He's obviously so overcome with rage that they were being mistreated, that he committed murder. And God says, I have two, two things which I think are incredible. Number one, I've heard the cries of my people, which is a great thought that we should all realize that God hears us when we cry out. But number two, he says, I have heard the cries of my people, and I'm sending you. And Moses is taken aback by the, the incredible awesomeness of this command. And when I say awesome, I mean like literally struck by awe about how amazing it is. And yet... Here's how Moses reacts. In verse 10 it says, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow in speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth. And with his mouth, I will teach you both what to do. And so Moses gets this incredible call from God. And his response is, I'm not skilled enough. His response is, God, I understand what you're asking me to do, but you've got the wrong guy. I can't do it. I'm not eloquent in speech. I've never been good at speaking. I'm not the guy that you want going in front of Pharaoh and declaring the good of the people. I'm not the prophet that you want to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And pay attention to how God answers Moses' insecurity. When Moses says, I can't do this, I'm not skilled enough, God says, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. See, God doesn't take the time to say, like, no, Moses, you're awesome. Like, you're so eloquent. I was listening to you talk the other day. You've got this in the background. Like, God doesn't take the time to do these things, but rather his answer is, I will be with you. His answer to Moses' insecurity is that I, I make man's mouth. Who do you think created you, Moses? Do you think I got the wrong guy? Like, all of a sudden, I'm going to be surprised. That's right. I forgot you were eloquent. Let me go find someone else to do this. As if Moses is trying to change God's mind. And then Moses still kind of sticks onto it. He says, no, God, please send someone else. And it says, the anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses. And I would, I would posit it's because of this. Insecurity is pride masquerading as humility. When we're insecure and we say no, we oftentimes think that we're being humble. We're being, you know, kind of like shying away a little bit. But in reality, what you're doing is God is calling you to do something and you're looking him back into his face and saying, no, you're wrong. I can't do that. And when you, when you kind of take a step outside of our own lives and you just examine the statement for what it is, that's an incredibly arrogant statement to make. It's an incredibly arrogant thing for Moses to say, uh, no, God, you're wrong. You picked the wrong guy. And yet that's what he does. 
And again, Moses goes on to do incredible things. We never know if Moses becomes more eloquent or not, but the idea is that God has chosen him, that God is with him, and because of that, nothing else matters. And Moses is going to go on to lead his people out of Egypt. If we fast forward a few generations, so at this point, Moses and Aaron uh, have both died. The people of Israel are living in Israel, living in the land that God has promised them, uh, but they're still constantly at war with all the tribes on the outside. And this is where we're going to meet a character named Gideon. So in, in Gideon's time, Again, the people of Israel are being oppressed, this time by the people of Midian. And the Bible says that what they would do is they would kind of just ride in um, and they would take all of the food, they would harvest all of the fields, they would hold people back with swords and presumably not let them do anything, and then they'd take their food and run. And so literally, if you weren't careful with what you did, you would just starve to death because they took all of your food and now you have nothing left to do. And the Bible says that the people of Israel actually went up and they made caves or they went into caves in the mountains and they would hide food or they would even live there just so that they could escape the oppression of the Midianites. And the people of God cry out for salvation, they cry out for deliverance, and God hears their cries. And so the angel of the Lord goes to Gideon. And it says that Gideon is in the wine press and he's sifting through wheat. Now, when I think of wine press, I think of there's this really funny video of like a reporter who steps on something in the wine press. I don't know if you've ever seen it. That's just a random thing that I thought of. But in the video, it's like this box that pops up, and then you step onto it, and then it all comes out through this nozzle and it goes into barrels. Like, you know, it's how you make wine, right? And so for years, I assumed like this is probably what Gideon is in. I never understood why is he in a wine press uh, sifting wheat. And then as I looked it up um, a few years ago, because I was speaking on the topic, um, I found this picture I thought was really interesting. So we can go ahead and throw it up. Uh, this is what an ancient wine press would have looked and so it's a little bit harder to see, it's a little bit darker, but there's basically a circle inside of the circle. Um, but it's a, it's a big pit. And so the reason Gideon would have been inside of the wine press sifting through wheat is so that no one else could see him sift wheat. He's, because he's so afraid that the Midianites will come and steal the things. He's going into a pit to sift through the food, and then presumably he'll find it, he'll take it, and he'll go hide it in the mountains or wherever it is that his family is hiding the food. And it's with this backdrop of extreme fear that the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. He says uh, in Judges chapter 6, verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord said to him, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And so once again, it's actually really similar to the story of Moses. The people of Israel being oppressed, they cry out. God says, I hear the cries of the Lord to save you. And he goes to a man and he says, okay, this is what I'm calling you to do. And Gideon, just like Moses, responds in insecurity. Although this time he's not insecure about not being skilled enough, at least that we can tell, but it seems like he's insecure about not being important enough. 
What he cites to God is not, I'm incapable of being a warrior, I'm incapable of leading, but he says, my clan, my tribe, is the weakest in Manasseh. Manasseh is just kind of like a middling clan. It's not one of the bigger ones, it's not one of the smaller ones, it's just kind of one of the tribes of Israel. Um, but his family unit is the weakest one in his entire tribe, and he's saying that I am the least in my family unit. Or in other words, if you went to this entire region with miles and miles and miles of where I'm standing, I am literally the least important person that you could possibly find. And I think oftentimes we attribute this to cowardice. Like when we go through the story of Gideon, we think to ourselves, like, well, he didn't want to fight, so he's just kind of saying these things. But I honestly think that he legitimately believes that he is not important enough to do what God's asking him to do. And the reason I think that is because you think in verse 13, it says this, And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And the idea here is that Gideon has grown up hearing about heroes of Israel. He's heard about Moses and Aaron, who was you know, the first great prophet of Israel, the first high priest who led the people out of slavery. He's heard about Joshua and Caleb and how 12 spies went in, and Joshua and Caleb were the only ones who weren't afraid, and they ended up leading the armies of Israel to conquer the land. He's heard about Othniel and Barak and Deborah, and he heard all these great, powerful warriors that God had been raising up to do his will. And Gideon says, I, I can't, I don't belong in that category of people, God. You've got the wrong guy. Gideon surely thinks that there's a better choice out there. But interestingly, uh, even though the tone is very different, God actually responds to Gideon in the exact same way he responds to Moses. In verse 16, he says, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Again, just like with Moses, God doesn't try and puff Gideon up. He doesn't tell Gideon, like, No, 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 Manasseh's the best tribe. Your clan's awesome. Like, don't even worry about it. Everyone's jealous of your clan, Gideon. And you're not the least in your father's house. That's totally your brother. That guy's a computer. Like, whatever it is, right? Like, God's not trying to puff up Gideon. He's saying, like, I know exactly who you are, and I'm going to be with you. And I, we don't have time to go through the whole story of Gideon, but if, if you know the story, Gideon raises up an army, and they go, and God continually shaves people off of the army so that when it gets to the point, I believe it's 300 men that he goes in with, and he kills the two kings of Midian and conquers the armies and is done in a way that is very obviously God. The people are shaved off so that Gideon can't stand up and say, like, I did this. It's so that God says that God can get the glory for it. When Gideon responds to insecurity, God simply reminds him of the truth that he is called and therefore he is qualified. And the final story I want to talk about today is the story of Peter. And and speaking of people who um, might not have been qualified, Peter is possibly the most unqualified person that we meet in the Bible who is asking you anything anything to note. Um, He's very brash, he's uneducated, um, and he's a fisherman, which nothing wrong with being a fisherman, but it's not exactly like a career that you can go into and then also one public speaking afterwards. And so this is who Peter is. And Peter's very brash, and sometimes that this, this works out for the good. There's a story where Jesus says, who do, you, who do people say that I am? And the disciples are like, well, some people say you're Moses, some people say you're Elijah. The disciples are like, you're a really awesome dude. And then Peter stands up, and he's like, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, wow, yep, you're right, absolutely. Because Peter just says what's on his mind. Um, but in one of the stories where his brashness really is not a good thing is at the Last Supper, 
And Jesus is telling his disciples that basically you're all going to desert me. I'm going to die tonight. One of you is going to betray me. And Peter gets up in front of this room of people and he says, Lord, I don't care what anyone else in this room does. I will never leave you. I'm with you to the end, no matter what that means. And Jesus looks at him and says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And as the story goes on, again, we're kind of skimming through a little bit, but Jesus is on trial, and Peter's outside kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. And someone comes up to him and says, hey, you're, um, you're from Galilee, aren't you? Aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And Peter says, like, no, I've never, never met that guy in my life. And someone else comes up and says, no, 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 I'm sure you're one of Jesus' disciples. I've seen you traveling with, with Jesus. And Peter says, like, look, I've never met the guy. I don't know what you're talking about. And then it says, Finally, a servant girl comes up to him, which in that culture is probably the least threatening person that could come up to him, and says, like, no, I, I swear, you are one of Jesus' disciples. And it says that Peter storms off and shouts, basically, I've never met Jesus, I don't know who he is, leave me alone. And then it's in that moment the rooster crows and Jesus, and Peter realizes that he's betrayed Jesus. That with all of his, his brashness and his pride and him thinking, like, I don't care what you say, God, I am not going to leave, I'm not going to forsake you, all of a sudden he realizes that he did exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. And I think that one of the most interesting things in the Bible, one of the stories that we don't talk about enough, because I think it's one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture, is um, after Jesus dies and rises again, he appears to the disciples, and then Peter and a few other disciples go back um, to the only life that he's ever known. He goes back to the Sea of Galilee, and he, he continues to be a fisherman. And in John chapter 1, verse 2, it says this. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which are John and James, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus called to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered, no. He said to them, cast your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, that's just how he refers to himself, which, you know, you do you, man, uh, said, therefore, he said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And I, I love that the brashness of Peter comes in this story, because they realize that it's Jesus on the shore, and the rest of the disciples are like, well, quick, let's pull up the nets, and let's drop the sails, and let's get the boat back into shore. And Peter's like, yeah, I'll see you guys there. And he just jumps into the water and swims back to shore. I, I love that Peter is like this. And I love this story because if you remember back to the first time that Jesus and Peter meet, Jesus is preaching and he asks to use Peter's boat as kind of a platform so that he can talk and sit, stand in and talk to people. And so Peter says, like, yeah, sure, you can use my boat, whatever. And so Jesus speaks and Peter hears him speak. And then Peter goes back to fishing and Jesus looks out and he says, hey, you should cast your nets to the other side. And then Peter's like, look, guy, I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing, but whatever. If you, want to be, if you want him on the other side, I'll put him on the other side. So he puts him on the other side, and the exact same thing happens. His nets are full, and he can barely pull back on the nets because of how many fish there are. And when he gets back into shore, Peter asks Jesus, who are you? And Jesus responds by saying, follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. 
is and after three years of Peter traveling with Jesus, he's seen everything. He's seen miracles. He's seen Jesus almost die multiple times and escape. He's seen Jesus with Moses and Elijah revealed and basically their heavenly eyes is incredible. He's heard the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter has seen some amazing things. And yet, at the end of this three-year journey, Jesus and Peter end up exactly back where they started. We're on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is telling Peter how to fish, which I think is just a beautiful thing. And after they have breakfast, Jesus and Peter have a conversation. In, uh, verses 15 through 19, it says this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show him by what death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I think it's, it's, I just love this passage so much. I think one of the cool things about it is that this is John writing it later in life. And so when it's in parentheses, John's literally putting in parentheses, Jesus said this to show by what death Peter was going to die. Because by the time John had written this, Peter had been dead for about 20 years at at this point. So John's writing with the full scope of knowing the entire story. And if... Moses responded to the call of God with the insecurity of saying, I'm not skilled enough. And Gideon responded to the call of God with the insecurity of saying, I'm not important enough. Peter's responding to the call of God with the insecurity of saying, I'm not good enough. And when I say not good enough, I mean, I've sinned too much, I've screwed up too much. You can't use me. And I, I love the fact that Jesus asks him three times to confirm his love for him, because it's almost like giving him a it's like saying, hey, remember that time that you denied me three times? Let's just undo it right now. And he asked him three times consecutively, do you love me? And I love that at the end of this entire conversation, once again, because it just parallels the first story super well, it's almost like Jesus is giving Peter a completely fresh start because his last words in that conversation are the same last words that he had the first time Jesus and Peter met, namely, follow me. And it's a command that Jesus is giving. We're going to do ministry. And Jesus knows that you are, that thousands of people are going to come to know Jesus because of the ministry of Peter. Like 3,000 in one day through one of the servants, which we'll get to in Acts. Well, not we'll get to. One day. And so we'll talk. Um, but it really is an incredible thing. And if we're talking about how does God respond to the disciples' call when a lot of them are feeling like possibly they're not good enough? They screwed up too much. Certainly Peter is feeling this way. If we skip ahead a book and we go to Acts chapter 1, this is when Jesus is, he's finished up his earthly ministry completely. He's about to ascend back into heaven. And it says this in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, 
Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So God's response, just like it was to Moses and just like it was to Gideon, is I will be with you. When they're asking how they're going to do everything that Jesus had commanded them to do, says the Holy Spirit's going to come more out of words, I will be with you. And as, as Christians, we are not supposed to live our lives as hostages to insecurity. And, and for some of us in this room, maybe the Holy Spirit is prompting us. Maybe you have a dream, you have a vision that God has put in your heart, and you know that there's something that's specific that you are supposed to accomplish, and what's holding you back is the idea of, you know, maybe I, I, I'm not skilled enough, God, you've got the wrong guy, or I'm, I'm not important enough, or I'm not whatever, you know, fill in the blank, I've screwed up too much. And, and, and whether or not the Holy Spirit's specifically prompting you in that way, all of us as Christians have a calling. All of us have been commanded by God to go into the world and make disciples. Or in other words, tell people about the grace of news. And it's, it's, it's so interesting to me because I think that we, we can grow up in church and we can be Christians for a long time and yet we don't behave like we truly believe that it's all true. Like if, if it is true that the creator of the universe loves us intimately, knows who we are, as the Bible says that he knows all of the hairs on our heads and that there is, there is a way out that we're facing condemnation because of sin, because of falling short, because of our nature, but that God made a way out and all we have to do is just have faith and trust in who Jesus is. If we truly believe that that was true, we would be going into all the world to make disciples. But things hold us back. We live as hostages things, whether it be, you know, we talked about the first week, living as like a hostage to sin and allowing sin just to grab all over our hearts so that we can't be effective at what God has asked us to do. Or we can live as hostages to our own emotions. We can, instead of anchoring ourselves to who Jesus is, we can ride the highs and lows of life and not be effective at what God has called us to do. And we can be hostages to insecurity. That when God commands us to do something, we just look back and think to ourselves, like, now you're not the wrong person, not me. I'm just here to see you know, Moses thought Moses thought he wasn't skilled enough but it didn't matter because God was Gideon thought he wasn't important enough but it didn't matter because God was with him Peter thought he wasn't good enough but it didn't matter because God was with him whatever you're thinking right now whatever the insecurity in your heart that you're wrestling with I'm here to tell you it doesn't matter because God is with you As I said at the beginning of the, of the message, I think there's repeating that so often as Christians, we ask the wrong question. We ask ourselves, am I good enough? Am I capable enough? Am I skilled enough? And all, all these different questions. We should be asking ourselves, do I truly believe that Jesus is enough? It's not about whether we're good enough, but if we believe Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, Thank you so much for the truth of your word and the truth of your gospel and the amazing grace that you have shown us. And I pray that as we hear this message today, as we read your word throughout the week, as we pursue you in prayer and worship, that 
These wouldn't just be empty things that we do because it's part of a routine, but I pray that the truth of who you are would just continually be revealed to us over and over and over. I pray for those of us in this room who are battling insecurity that's holding us back from doing the things that you have called us to do. I pray that you would help us to break those things off of our lives. I pray that the next time that we think to ourselves, whatever it is that we're not good enough or skilled enough or important enough or whatever is holding us hostage, I pray that we would just remember that you were enough. Just like Moses and Gideon and Peter and so many other people that we know about, that your answer to our insecurity is that you will be with us. And that is all that matters. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your sacrifice. And I thank you that we will one day get to spend eternity with you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Snohomish Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.